You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome. If you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19 this morning. Uh, Here on Sunday mornings, we're studying through the book of Acts in our sermon series titled Revolution. And in the book of Acts, what we're seeing is, what we're looking at is the revolution that took place in the wake of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the news of who he was and what he had done as it spread out into the world, as it changed individuals, as it changed families, as it transformed communities and ultimately empires. And the incredible thing is that, that that revolution continues on to this day as well, and we are part of carrying that out in our generation today. So please pray with me as we open God's Word in Acts chapter 19. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your presence here among us today. And Lord, we come to you with open hearts and expectant uh, minds and hearts, Lord, expecting to hear from you and asking that you would speak to us and teach us from your word, Lord, that these things would transform our lives as they renew our minds. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So currently we're in a part of the book of Acts where we are reading about the very first missionaries, people who left house and home uh, to go to people that they had never met before, people in distant lands at great expense to themselves and even danger to themselves in order to take to them the life-giving message, the news of Jesus Christ to these people. So specifically we've been following the travels and the work of a man named Paul. And here in Acts chapter 19, we see, we catch up with Paul. He's now on his third missionary journey, and he's come to the city of Ephesus, which as we will read in our section today, we're going to see that this is really a high point of his ministry as a missionary and a pastor. We read in this chapter last week, we previously saw this, just to catch you up, we saw that through Paul's work in Ephesus, we read in uh, chapter 19 verse 10, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now that's the Roman province of Asia, which I got a map here for you. That shows that the Roman province of Asia was western Turkey. And so later on in this chapter, it will also tell us that here in Ephesus, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What was going on in Ephesus was something that Christians have you know, historically referred to as revival. This was one of those special times when large numbers of people were coming to the faith, and as a result, an entire community was transformed. In the early days of the United States, we experienced something similar in what we called the series of Great Awakenings. Uh, There was the great Wesleyan revival that swept through England in which every town in England, uh, even to this day, there was only a few towns where the Wesleyan revival did not take place. In the early 20th century, there was a great revival in Wales. And even more recently, in the 1960s and 70s, there was a revival amongst the youth culture in California. Now, these were special times when many people turned to God and embraced the gospel. And as a result, not only individual lives, but families, but even more than that, entire communities were impacted and affected and changed in the process. This is what we're going to see happened with Paul here in Ephesus. As he preached, as he taught for three years in Ephesus, many people embraced Jesus, and as a result, the city of Ephesus began to change in noticeable ways. 
That sounds pretty great, right? That's what we want. That's what we'd love to see happen here where we live as well. But as you see and as you might expect, not everybody was especially happy about these changes that were beginning to take place in their community as a result of so many people becoming Christians. So during the time that Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. And at the end of that first letter to the Corinthians, he says this. He writes them, he says, I hope to spend time with you. He wants to come visit them. He says, if the Lord permits, I will. He says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. I love that attitude, right? There's a lot of people who oppose me, so I'm going to stay here some more, right? That's the story of Paul's time in Ephesus. There was on the one hand revival, and on the other hand, there was great opposition. So the title of today's message is Revival and Opposition. There are three elements to this story which we're going to be looking at. First of all, we're going to see transformative teaching. Then we're going to see that there were extraordinary miracles. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about why so angry. So transformative teaching extraordinary miracles and why so angry Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world it was a city with a population of 300,000 which doesn't sound like a lot to us now but for that time that was a very large city I mean you got to consider that's before urbanization and all these things before modern technology this was a city of 300,000 people that made it the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire and it was the chief city of the province of Asia which is western Turkey So today, ancient Ephesus is a huge archaeological site. Uh, Much of the city still remains. We have uh, some photos of some ruins here for you. And, uh, you know, the biggest archaeological find in Ephesus has been an outdoor theater which seats 25,000 people. Now, to give you some perspective, the uh, Coors Events Center in Boulder seats 11,000 people. The Pepsi Center seats 19,000 people, okay? So this is an arena that sat 25,000 people back in the day. So uh, that's still standing in Ephesus, and we're going to see that that is uh, part of our story today, actually, that that, uh, theater that's been uncovered. But what Ephesus was more famous for, even more than their giant arena, what Ephesus was most famous for was that it was home to the temple of the goddess Artemis. And, And this temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you remember back to elementary school when you had to learn about the seven wonders of the ancient world, this is one of them. It was one of the largest buildings in the world at the time, and even by today's standards, it was enormous. Here's some uh, measurements for you. It was 400 feet long. So think about a football field and then tack on another uh, third of a football field. That's how long this building was. It was 200 feet wide. It was surrounded by 127 pillars of marble, which each of them, they were 60 feet high. So you remember the Parthenon in Athens? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Uh, Paul was in Athens, you know, the Parthenon up on the Acropolis, this huge temple. Um, Well... To give you some perspective, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was seven times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was humongous. So Artemis was the goddess of fertility and prosperity. And the temple to Artemis was a great attraction, a humongous tourist attraction, a religious site that people would make pilgrimages to. Travelers from all over the empire, they would come to make pilgrimages to Ephesus in order to come to the temple of Artemis, in order to get the blessing of Artemis, which was prosperity and fruitfulness and fertility in their lives. That's what they were seeking after. And this religious tourism, as you can imagine, it brought a lot of income to the city, a lot of money to the local economy there in Ephesus. 
So Paul came to Ephesus. He stayed there for three years, which is longer than he stayed anywhere else as a missionary. And part of the reason was because God was doing such a great work in Ephesus, he wanted to stay. The first element that characterized Paul's time in Ephesus and the revival that took place there was transformative teaching. So that's our first point we want to look at. Read with me, if you would, from verse 8 of chapter 19. He, that's Paul, he entered the synagogue when he came to Ephesus, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This hall of Tyrannus, some translations of yours, if you're reading a different translation than I am, it might call it the school of Tyrannus. That's because this was a lecture hall. It was a rented room in a local school that Paul borrowed or rented, and he would have meetings there. It says that he met there daily. And during these meetings, he would teach from the scriptures about Jesus, and he would challenge people intellectually and emotionally to consider who Jesus was and to consider what Jesus did and what that meant for their lives. There's one ancient document which says that Paul did this every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's five hours. That's a lot of teaching. That was siesta time, by the way, in that society. And so while everyone was taking a break from work, Paul would go and he had this room that he rented or borrowed and he would teach the Ephesian disciples, the Christians, and anyone else who was interested and he would teach for five hours every day, six days a week. We imagine that he probably took the Sabbath off. We guess that. So six days a week, five hours a day for two years. That's thousands of hours of teaching. So these Ephesian believers would have been extremely a well-taught group. And the result of these two years of explaining and instructing of doctrine and application, the, the result of that is that these Ephesian believers ended up with an excellent understanding of the scriptures and they were equipped to effectively minister to people in their community. One of the things we read there is that as a result of Paul's teaching all this time in the hall of Tyrannus, it says that all the, all the residents of the Roman province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The disciples that Paul was training through this regular teaching, they went into their neighborhoods, they went into their workplaces, into towns and villages, and they took the word of God with them to those places. As they were being taught by Paul, in the process they were being equipped. They were being equipped to speak to others, answer their questions uh, because of what they were learning from Paul from the scriptures. And this is the very kind of thing that Paul actually writes to the Ephesians about. In his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he tells them that the role of a pastor and a teacher, anybody who's leading in the church, the role of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so that's what Paul was doing there in Ephesus. He was teaching the whole counsel of God. See, this is our heart at Whitefields as well. We place a big emphasis on teaching the Bible, on reasoning about the gospel, and our goal is to equip you. That's what this is all about, equipping you so that you will be able to minister to people who you cross paths with, people uh, that you come in contact with, so you'll be equipped to teach your kids and to answer questions that, that people you know might have about Christianity. So Paul's teaching in Ephesus, it wasn't just informative though, it was also transformative. Paul would later write to the Romans and he would say this, he would say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So teaching that transforms your life is teaching which renews your mind, which engages you intellectually and challenges your deep-seated patterns of thinking with the gospel, the message of who God is and, and who you are and what God has done for you in Christ. You see, the reason why Paul was so committed to teaching, that he spent five hours a day doing it six days a week for two years, that's a commitment. The reason he was so committed to teaching is because he knew that the word of God has the power to transform a person's life. See, that's why he consciously invested the majority of his time in Ephesus to teaching the believers, to reasoning about the gospel, making sure that these people were rooted and grounded in the scriptures, that they would be able to give an answer to anyone who asked a question about the hope that they had. And this teaching of God's word, this was an important part of the great revival that took place in Ephesus. People were encountering God through Paul's reading and teaching of the scriptures. They were being transformed by the renewing of their minds as they were being equipped to follow Jesus and teach others about Jesus and answer any questions that people might have about Jesus. Here in Ephesus, as Paul taught the whole counsel of God, his goal was nothing less than transformation. To see people transformed from people who didn't know God to people who did know God. To, to see them transformed from people who, who weren't following Jesus to people who were active disciples of Jesus, following him in every area of their lives. Transforming people into ambassadors for Christ in their communities. You see this kind of transformation, again, that's what we're at here at Whitefield. That's part of our mission statement. Our mission is to facilitate gospel transformation through the teaching of the scriptures. You see, that, that's why we teach the Bible the way we do. We want to encounter God in his word, and we want to be transformed from the way we are to the way that he wants us to be. That's why we want to get the whole counsel of God's word, that we might not be conformed to this world, but that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So not only was there transformative teaching, but we also see the next thing was that there were extraordinary miracles. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Some of your translations will say unusual miracles. These were things which, even as far as miracles are concerned, which you'd think a miracle is kind of extraordinary by nature, right? But even beyond that, as far as miracles are concerned, these were especially uh, noteworthy. They were especially um, unusual. God was doing unusual, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the, oh, we'll, we'll go on in a second. So we read here, what we're going to read is about evil spirits, now see what the Bible teaches is that there are, in fact, spiritual forces of evil that are at work in the world. Uh, these spiritual forces of evil are limited by God. They exist within parameters which God has given them. And there are times when they will tempt us, when they will uh, deceive us. And if a person gives themselves over to them, they can control that person in some way and to some degree. And what, that makes sense when you think about it. When you think about the things that we deal with in our lives, that it's not just coincidence, it's not not just uh, dealing with our flesh, but there's more to it than that. There are spiritual forces of evil at work in the world. 
We talked a couple weeks ago about how Paul worked, he worked part-time as a tent maker to support himself. So in the mornings, he was making tents, and then in the afternoons, he would go and teach in the lecture hall. And so being a tent maker, he would have aprons and handkerchiefs, you know, he gets hot, you sweat, you wipe your sweat, and he would uh, set these things down while he was working or stepped away from his work or went away to teach. And people, it seems, kept coming by and stealing these things, which must have been incredibly frustrating for Paul, right? Like, Gosh, I have to get a new apron every day. This is getting expensive, right? Put it down in your handkerchief. You turn around and it's gone again, right? So the, the uh, text here, the impression it gives us that people were coming by and they were snagging, they were stealing, they were running off with his, you know, sweat claws and his aprons that were touching his skin. Now remember, this was Ephesus. This was a hotbed of pagan, superstitious uh, Belief. This was a magic-oriented city. That was the culture of the city. People believed that relics had power, that somebody's personal item, which had touched their skin, was endowed with their spiritual power. So people kept running off with Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons, and, you know, that's got to be frustrating. They were taking his personal items, and they were laying them on the sick so that they would be healed, and on those who had evil spirits, and they were being set free. And it actually worked. See, Ephesus was, again, a, a hotbed of pagan religion. It was the air that they breathed. It was the water that they swam in. It was the culture of the city. And so in that culture, this is how people thought. They thought that a person like Paul, he preaches the one true God. He preaches Jesus, the divine Savior. And maybe his, his personal items could be used as relics because they're endowed with spiritual power of his God. And therefore, they can be used for healing and freeing from evil spirits. And the interesting thing is, God actually did it, right? It wasn't the handkerchiefs that, that healed these people. It says in the text, God did these things. Now you wonder, now why would God do that? Isn't that somehow kind of validating their superstitions? But, but what God did here is something that we find an example of in several other places throughout the Bible, and that's this, that from time to time, God accommodates people's superstitions or their, or their bad practices. He doesn't approve of them. He doesn't think they're okay. But in order to meet them where they're at, in order to point them to him as the real thing, he'll accommodate. Remember, this is a city steeped in magic and occultism. And although God doesn't approve of their practices, he chooses to meet these people and give them kind of what they're looking for, which is a power encounter on their own turf. And the message it would send was that the God that Paul preaches is the true God who has power over demons and, and spiritual world. They would know that the God that Paul preaches has real spiritual power over the physical world and over the spiritual world. And so they would listen to what Paul had to say because his God is the one who truly has power. And it seems that this actually worked because look at what happened next, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So he was working and so these people were like, hey, we'll jump on board, right? It's another tool in our toolbox. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So word began to spread that this, there was real spiritual power in the name of Jesus. And so here are these people and, you know, they've got this little family business of exercising demons. And so they say, hey, 
it's working for those guys. Maybe it'll work for us. So they start invoking the name of Jesus kind of in a superstitious way, right? Like as a formula to drive out demons. Kind of a magic word that they could utilize at will as one more tool in their toolbox to get the job done. But uh, as you'll see, it didn't quite work the way they wanted. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So that's a bad ministry day, right? Like you go into ministry with your uh, six brothers and one day you come home and uh, you're naked and you're covered in blood and your wife says, how was the day, honey? And you're just like, I don't want to talk about it. And you just go to your room and you shut the door. The problem with the seven sons of Sceva is that they were trying to use Jesus, but they had no relationship with Jesus. Do you see the difference? They're trying to use Jesus, but they have no relationship with Jesus. And I wonder how many people there are like that today, right? You, you know of Jesus, but you don't know him. You know of him, but you have no relationship with him. You don't follow him. You know of Jesus like these guys did. They knew that Jesus, whom Paul preaches... Maybe some of you know him in similar ways. The Jesus who my mom and dad believe in. The Jesus who the pastor talks about. The Jesus who my spouse believes in. But you have no relationship with him of your own. But see, but like the seven sons of Sceva, even though you have no relationship with Jesus, you still think that he might be useful to you in some ways, right? In the event that you might end up needing some help with something you can't do yourself, maybe he could be useful to you. See, that's where these seven sons of Sceva were at. And that's where many people are at in regard to Jesus. They see Jesus as potentially useful, but that's it. But what happens when you come to really understand the gospel, when you come to understand what Jesus did for you, the message of the cross, what happens when you come to really know and understand it is this, that you no longer view Jesus as useful. You begin to see Jesus as beautiful. You no longer invoke his name because he's useful to you. You begin to invoke his name because he's beautiful to you. You see, when you really understand the gospel, when you really understand the depth of your lostness and the riches of God's love and grace towards you expressed in what he did for you on the cross, then you no longer seek him because he's useful. You begin to seek him because he's beautiful. I, I've, uh, I've used this illustration before and I, I think it bears repeating. You know, a lot of uh, times pastors will use this phrase, right? We'll say, you can have a personal relationship with God. And we think that that is, you know, something that's very, you know, that's a great sales pitch, right? Like, who wouldn't want to have a relationship with God? Everybody's going to jump on board with this, right? Uh, but the thing is this, that a lot of people, I think, in their perception, that offer isn't as attractive as we pastors tend to uh, think that it is, right? Because in, in some people's perception, it, that offer is about as attractive as if you would say to a school child, hey, what if I told you, you could have a personal relationship with the principal of your school, right? Like, are you, are you excited, right? See, it's just not something they really want. I mean, I mean, yes, they know the principal is there, and the principal is an important person, and the principal probably does some really important stuff, and he's probably really nice and all, but their goal in life is really to just kind of steer clear of the principal and never really end up in his office, right? So they respect the principal, but they're not really looking to have a personal relationship with the principal, right? And I think that's how many people feel about God. Like, hey, I'm good with God. Like, I just try to stay on his good side, try to keep all the rules so I don't get on his bad side. And I just leave it at that, right? Like, me and God, as long as we're cool and not, you know, bothering each other, then it's all good. But one day, what if you were to find out 
that several years ago, before you can even remember, you were deathly ill and you needed several transplants and infusions and a search was done near and far for all possible donors who could do this for you, but none was found because no one could be found who was a perfect match to be a donor for you, to give you what you needed to save your life, except for one, the principal. And he gave two kidneys and a liver and his right arm and half his brain and all of his blood to the point where he died on the operating table. But miracle of miracles, he's now alive and he saved your life. Do you think that might change, that knowledge might change your feelings about the principle? Well, of course it would. It would change your entire disposition towards him, the way that you relate to him, the way you think about him. It would all change. You'd smile when you walked past him. You'd begin to watch him and observe him with a curious eye. Who is this person who would do such an incredible thing to save me? Well, I've never done anything for him. You'd want to get to know him. And in the meantime, guess what? You would trust him, wouldn't you? You'd inherently trust him because clearly he has proven that he cares about you. And so he must have your best interest in mind. See, when you really understand the gospel, when the gospel becomes personal to you, then you no longer view God primarily as useful, but you begin to see God as beautiful. It's when you see how much he loved you that you grow in love for him. Do you want to grow in love for God? Do you want that part of your life to increase? you want to love him more? Then look to the cross. See how utterly lost you were apart from him. Behold the love of God for you expressed in this ultimate action, dying on your behalf, bearing your sin in your place. Jesus, the divine son who left the comfort and security, the glory, the peace of heaven in order to be attacked, in order to be disgraced, in order to be beaten and nailed to a tree, but even more than all those physical things, to have divine judgment thrust upon him. And he did it for you. Do you want to grow in your love for God? Then look to the cross. And see the gospel and let it become personal to you. What the seven sons of Sceva found out was that there was no spiritual power available to them in the name of Jesus apart from a relationship with Jesus. And the same is true for you and me today. If for you Jesus is only the Jesus who my spouse believes in or the Jesus who my parents know and believe in, well then like the seven sons of Sceva, you will not benefit from him. Check out what happened as a result of these things, starting in verse 17. It says, This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These extraordinary miracles, they showed the people of Ephesus in that magic-oriented city that the Jesus whom Paul preached, that he had real spiritual power, he had power over both the physical world and the spiritual world, and that it's not just enough to know of him. You need to put your faith in him in order for his power to be effective in your life. And many people in Ephesus turned to Jesus and they embraced the gospel. And as a sign of true conversion... Because I'll tell you this, real repentance is always 
accompanied by action. And as a sign of genuine conversion, they confessed their sins and they renounced their former ways. And anything they had that had anything to do with magic or occultism, they burned it regardless of how much value it had. They didn't sell it. They didn't want other people to have those things. They wanted them destroyed. And it says that the value of those things was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now there are different estimates uh, as to how much that is in our uh, you know, current equivalent. Uh, but it ranges from $1 million on the low end to $6, 7000000 million on the high end. This is millions of dollars of stuff. These sorcery books were expensive. That's a lot of money. And you might wonder, how could they afford to lose that much money? Well, I say, how could they not afford to do that? How could they not? I mean, these are things which had kept them in bondage spiritually to superstition and demonic practices. And now they see the very real presence of evil in the things that they used to do, and they want them out of their lives completely. They want them to be gone, and they don't want other people to be led astray by them either. They said these things need to be destroyed. I'll tell you, real repentance is always accompanied by action. See, it's one thing to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it anymore, but see, an action is accompanying it. That's the sign of real repentance. And those actions often include getting rid of any vestiges of the former way of life that you're repenting of. It might be books, it might be computer files, it might be substances, it might be phone numbers. See, anything that might tempt you later on to come back to those things which God has set you free from and brought you out of. The Ephesians were wise in this regard. They destroyed these things completely so that neither they nor anyone else would ever use them again. And no one ordered them to do this. This wasn't like a church-sanctioned book burning, right? This was people voluntarily coming forward and saying, these things have been a disaster in my life, and I want to be rid of them, and I don't want anybody else's life to be ruined by them either. I want to be done with them. See, a great revival was taking place there in Ephesus. God was doing a great work of setting people free and giving them new life. And that's pretty great, right? But that's not the end of the story. See, not only was there a revival, but there was also opposition. And notice what happened as a result. We read this next section, and this brings us to our third point. Why so angry? Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be disposed or deposed of her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. That's the theater that we saw the picture of just a, a few minutes ago. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are political leaders in the area, who were friends of his, Paul's, they sent to him and they were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, 
For about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the fact that many people in Ephesus were turning to Jesus has had a profound impact on the local economy. And that led to a riot started by a silversmith named Demetrius. Demetrius was a maker of little idols that people would buy and they would take home to be part of their personal shrines. And there was a whole economy in Ephesus built around the worship of Artemis. But now the livelihood of these artisans is being threatened because so many people in Ephesus are renouncing paganism and putting their faith in Jesus. And here's Paul, and he's preaching that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. And so less and less people are uh, coming to visit the temple, which means less and less money for the artisans who are selling uh, idols and shrines. But see, it wasn't just a financial thing. Many of the people in Ephesus were upset because Christianity represented a threat to their way of life, a threat particularly to their idols. And this mob comes together in the very theater that, we, uh, that the archaeologists discovered there in Ephesus, seats 25,000 people, because they felt that their God was being threatened. Their idol that they worshipped as God was being threatened, and that is what made them react so extremely. You know, they're angry, they're shouting, they're ready to kill somebody. Now, this is an interesting thing that Paul writes to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says this very interesting thing. Check it out. He says, put to death covetousness within you because it is idolatry. Now, think about this. Who's he writing this to? He's saying this is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Who's he writing it to? If he's writing it to the Colossian Christians. These are not people who go to pagan temples. These are not people who bow down to idols anymore. They've come out of that. They've renounced that. But yet Paul tells them that covetousness in their hearts is a form of idolatry. Now what does that tell us? It tells us something very profound and important, and that's this. Paul's telling them that idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is not just worshiping a pagan god or goddess. Even covetousness in your heart, which is an unseen thing, it's, an, it's not an action that you do, it's a feeling inside your heart. That is a form of idolatry. So therefore, what is idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping something, anything else besides God, putting something or anything in the place of God, the place in your life and in your heart, which is only reserved for God. That's idolatry. An idol is anything that you look to to give you the things which only God can give you. So you may believe in God, you may affirm Christian doctrine, you may come to church regularly, you may read the Bible at home, but functionally in your life, whatever it is that you look to to be the source of your identity, your hope, and meaning in life, functionally, that is your God. See, idolatry is when we take good things and we make them ultimate things. See, idolatry isn't, isn't usually regarding bad things. Idolatry is usually regarding good things that we take and we make them the ultimate thing in our hearts and in our lives. The thing that you hope in. The thing that you live for. The thing that is functionally your savior. You look to it for salvation. You say the language of idolatry so that you can recognize it in yourself is when you say, if I only had that that, if I only had that, then everything would be right. Then I would be okay. If only I had that, then my life would have value and purpose and meaning. Then I'd be happy if I had that. On the other hand, it goes the same way, the other way. If I ever lose that thing that I have, then I will be truly lost and there will be no purpose 
to live. There will be no reason to go on. When you go back in history and you look at the book of Acts, here's what we see, and, and not just the book of Acts, throughout the Old Testament as well. You see that in these pagan cultures, they had a God and goddess on every corner, right? They had a God for everything, right? They had a God that represented different things. Everything had a God behind it that they, they worshipped, that they looked to and hoped in and lived for, which gave them identity, hope, and meaning, right? There was a God for everything. There was a God of war. There was a God of uh, prosperity, there was a God of fertility. There was a God of romantic love. There was a God of power and a God of control, a God of work and a God of recreation. There was a God of agriculture and there was a God of finances. There was a God of arts and a God of music. And you say, wow, those are some very superstitious people. No, don't you see? Don't you see that they understood something which many people in our day fail to understand? They were overt about something which we are covert about. They acknowledge something which we do without even recognizing it. That any relationship, any activity, any pursuit in this world can be something that we worship and therefore treat as our God. Looking to that thing to give us what only God can give us. Identity, hope, meaning, purpose, and salvation. See, there are, there are some things that are easy litmus tests, by the way. There are some litmus tests to help reveal what those things are in our lives that we functionally worship, the idols in our lives. One of the litmus tests is this, by considering what it is that you are willing to sacrifice for. I read something this week, and it said that New York, the God of New York City is money, and the reason you know that is because every year, hundreds of thousands of children are sacrificed on the altar of success and money in New York City, right? In other words, these people are sacrificing the best interest of their children for something they want more. Do you see what I'm saying? That's when you know that something has become your master. When everything else, even good things, have to be ditched, have to be set aside because I've got to get that. Because if I had that, then nothing else would matter. Then I would, I would be okay. Then I would have everything that my heart desires, everything that I'm looking for. Then I would have hope, and I would have identity, and I would have meaning in life. See, another test, though, that helps reveal what the idols are in our hearts is this, your uncontrolled emotions. Timothy Keller, in his book on this subject, which is called Counterfeit Gods, it's an excellent book, it's a small book with big letters. I would recommend that you read it. But in his book on this subject, he says this, he says, Pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. So where do you find your most uncontrolled emotions surfacing in your life? When do you get irrationally, unexplainably upset about something you shouldn't get that upset over that thing, right? Like what are the things that cause you to overreact? Pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. Whatever your idol is, when it's threatened, when you're afraid that you might lose it, which is what happened here in Acts chapter 19, isn't it? They were afraid that they were going to lose this. Then you go on the defensive. Then you're ready to fight because you want to protect your idol because if you lose that thing, you can't afford to lose that thing. You'll lose the thing which you're looking for, looking to, to give you meaning in life, your hope, your, your identity, your salvation. You can't afford to lose that thing because it has become the ultimate thing in your life. And so you're willing to fight to defend it. You're willing to fight. You get defensive like these people. You shout, great is my Artemis. Great is my idol. Stop threatening it. Back off. You see, the reason these people were so upset is because their idol was being threatened. 
Because here's Paul, and he's proclaiming, God's made with your own hands are not God's at all. They have no power to give you the things which you're looking to them to give you. These things that you're looking to the idols to give you, they can only be found in the one true God through Jesus Christ. In other words, you're looking for good things, but you're looking for them in the wrong places. Ultimately, you will be disappointed unless you forsake the empty idols and you turn to the living God and you put your eyes and your hope fully upon Jesus Christ who alone is the source of all the things which you seek for those idols to give you. See, it's worth asking yourself, what are the idols in my heart? What are the things which I have been looking to to find the things which, I, which can only be found in God through Christ because, because that's the only place they can be found, right? So, See, these are usually good things. They're things, though, that are good, but we turn them into ultimate things, and we look to them for functional salvation. Oftentimes, you know, money, career, recognition, family, romance, morality, beauty, skill. Every one of those are good things, but they're things which commonly become idols in people's lives, things that they look to, that they hope in, that they find their identity from. Think about Artemis. What did she represent? Artemis represented prosperity. That's what people were worshiping when they worshiped Artemis. They're worshiping, they're looking for prosperity. And man, did they ever worship her. And do you think that Artemis is still worshiped today? Absolutely. I mean, do people today worship prosperity? Do they make pursuing prosperity the ultimate thing in their life, the source of their identity and meaning, their hope in life, which they look to as a functional savior? Absolutely. And when that was threatened in our story, chaos erupted. People got angry. They shouted. They were ready to kill somebody. They lost their minds. They chanted for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here's the irony of the story. It's found in the final verses, verse 36 through 40. Well, here's what happens. The city clerk comes into the theater and says to these people, guys, take a second and think about this. You're saying that the Christians are causing chaos in the city. You guys are causing chaos in the city. He says, you say that the Christians are disrupting the social order of Ephesus. You guys, look at what you're doing. This is a riot. You guys are causing social disorder in Ephesus. Look at yourselves. You're overreacting. They haven't even really done anything. If you have a case, take it to the pro-councils. Take it to court. But if not, chill out and go home. But the thing, the thing that they did, see, when their idol was threatened is the same thing that all of us do when our idols are threatened. Again, pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and you will find your idols clinging to them. The things that you're looking to, the things that you're hoping in, for things which can only be found in God through Christ. Hope, security, identity, salvation, redemption, value, meaning, purpose. There are two things in closing that, about idolatry that we need to learn from this section. First of all, idolatry is incredibly pervasive. Idolatry is incredibly pervasive. All of us, every one of us, struggles with this. And here's the other thing, though. That idolatry is absolutely empty. Gods of your own creation are no gods at all. They, they have no power to give you the things that you hope that they will give you. They will only leave you always empty and disappointed. And the gospel 
The gospel is the answer to all the deepest longings of your heart. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is the one whom your heart has always been longing for and seeking after? In him is found the satisfaction that your heart desires. Nothing can take his place. So I encourage you today, turn from empty idols and turn to Jesus, your creator, your sustainer, the only savior, the one who came to take your sins upon himself that you might have life and salvation now and forever. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Oh Jesus, we thank you for the great hope of the gospel. Lord, and we confess that we're, we're not that much different than the Ephesians, Lord, that we too look to other things for, to, to find that which can only be found in you. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel, though. Thank you that everything that we do desire in our heart of hearts, Lord, it is ours in you through Jesus Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for what you did for us on the cross, Lord, that you gave everything for us. Lord, may we in turn now, in response to that, may we give everything to you. I pray for anybody here, Lord, who is on the fence, who hasn't yet decided where they stand. They haven't put down their yes in following you. Lord, I pray that for them, Jesus, they wouldn't know Jesus only as the Jesus I hear about at church, the Jesus my parents believe in, Jesus my spouse believe in, but Lord, it, it would be today the Jesus that they believe in, the Jesus whom they follow. Would you do that work in all of us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.